0: This is Containers, a radio documentary presented by Flexport, which looks at work, technology, and shipping as a way of understanding how the economy actually works. The systems that deliver the products you buy to store shelves or your doorstep are complex and hidden. Through telling the stories of people working in supply chains, we make logistics more human and understandable. I'm your host, Alexis Madrigal. In previous episodes, we've looked at whole systems in a kind of horizontal way. Like, how did containerization develop? How does global trade across the Pacific work now? What kind of maritime ecosystem does it take to be a port city in the modern era? Today, we're going to look at how one product moves across the world. And that product is coffee. Because coffee is the best, and everyone loves it. And also, something really interesting has been happening in coffee logistics that directly influences the kinds of coffee you can now buy and drink. In the course of a few years, a fancy coffee went from a Starbucks latte to a cup of individually poured coffee from some particular cooperative in the highlands of an equatorial country. The fancy coffee game now requires wine industry-like attention to the soil at origin, microclimates, labor practices, farming methods, and processing steps. People call this third wave coffee, and it's produced highly visible, tasteable change in the type and quality of coffee available in the United States, especially in fancy food and drink strongholds like San Francisco. Well, as a coffee drinker, you might notice all the new types of coffee. There's a hidden back end to this revolution in coffee production. The whole industry, has had to reorganize itself to meet the demands of the third-wave roasters. There is a new coffee culture, and we're going to look at the infrastructure that makes it possible. To understand how third-wave coffee is transforming global trade, you have to know how the stuff is bought, sold, and transported. So let me introduce you to our guide in this world Aaron
1: On my weekend, one of my favorite things to do is to find a Greasy Spoon Diner where nobody in coffee knows me and have a stack of pancakes and just like whatever comes off of that glass pot. Aaron
0: wears big 90s sideburns yeah. and a ponytail. His catch-all adjective is neat. And I think he would not mind me saying that he's more coffee nerd than coffee snob. He works for Ritual which has long been the standard-bearer for ultra-high-quality, small-farm sourcing in the Bay Area and nationally, too. He selects and maintains the complex flow of raw coffee into the roasting operation. Aaron is what's known as a green buyer, and his job places him right in the middle of the global coffee revolution, which has created and depends on a sophisticated consumer.
1: For an example, we've got a coffee called Carmona from Guatemala. And as far as people who buy Carmona are concerned, they just want to see that name and they want to see it available.
0: So yeah, people see the name Carmona and they come to associate it with a particular flavor and they want it to stay consistent and good. But Carmona is really kind of just a label for a bunch of different harvests of different trees picked at different times on the 270 acres of the Hacienda Carmona in the Antigua region
1: of Guatemala. You're not picking the whole farm at once. It's like you've got people who go out there for a day. They pick a bunch of bags. That coffee gets processed, and then a small sample is set aside. And that stuff is the stuff that the green buyer will taste. When Aaron arrives on the scene,
0: the beans from different harvest times are grouped into what are called day lots, and that's what the green
1: buyers, like him, sample. And then they say, like, oh, you know, I like that one, I like that one. I don't really like that one, but this one's cool too. So, like, how about you take these three, and kind of, we'll put them together, and that will be the Carmona for this year.
0: And that's what he does for all of the coffees that Ritual sells from all over the world, which means that for you to have your preferred Ethiopian coffee or something special from Colombia, he has to travel the world, getting buzzed, tasting the finest coffees humans have ever produced. It's a pretty sweet job. He just got back from a coffee-buying trip to Kenya, where he went to the Nairobi Coffee Exchange, which is held in this crazy
1: wood-paneled room. It's definitely a relic of, I know, it feels like old, you know, colonial British times. We've got all these, like, big formal desks that the traders sit at. Each one has um, an ashtray built into it. And I'm just, and like, all these stained coffee cups around. Um, you know, I just have in my head, like, this vision of a bunch of kind of old expats sitting around, just making this billowing smoke in there, just, you know, buying and selling coffee.
0: And the coffee business varies wildly from country to country, so each nation has different rules, and they're often kind of strange by American business standards. Aaron's job is to navigate the Byzantine world of coffee trading, all in service to the ever-growing demand for high-end coffee
1: that can retail for more than $25 a pound. Coffee is bought and sold for the entire country of Kenya in tiny little 10- and 12-bag lots. Occasionally, you'll see something that comes into the hundreds, but really, it's like, you know... This auction will go from real early in the morning to way late at night, and it's not done until kind of like every last bean in the entire country of Kenya is sold.
0: In Nairobi, there are brokers who do the actual trading for people like Aaron.
1: They're the ones sitting at the desks with the ashtrays. There's one little button on the desk, Um, and as long as two traders have their buttons pressed or more. the Bid price keeps going up and up and up. Um, and, yeah, it makes a crazy little sound effect. It starts going pew, 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 pew. After a couple seconds, when nobody makes their last bid, it's yours. After the coffees Aaron buys arrive
0: at Ritual, more on that in a minute, he sits down with Ritual's head roaster, and they talk over
1: the acquisitions. You know, I'll be like, hey, you know, I think this one will be really good as just, like, a single-origin, light-roasted drip line. Like, you know, I'm thinking about putting it in our cafes. We're going to brew it up this way. You know, let's find a good roast for that.
0: Then the beans are taken to Ritual's Roastery, which is located in a coffee micro-neighborhood in San Francisco's Soma District. He invited me to see the facility firsthand. The roastery is about the size of a big cafe. A garage-like room at the back serves as Ritual's whole
1: warehouse. Oh, it's like miniature warehouse. Yeah. (laughs) So... Um, we can hold about two weeks' worth of coffee. We kind of follow the harvest, so right around this time of the year, things are actually pretty slim. Honduras, for example, tends to harvest in February or March, so by January
0: of the next year, when we're meeting, that coffee is all gone. But Aaron has found one group of farmers who let him keep fresh Honduran coffee flowing into ritual longer.
1: They've got a neat area where... um, They've got a little bit more elevation and there's this, like, lake that they're right next to. So they get fog, cooler temperatures, and they harvest late.
0: Ritual is very well known for working with small producers directly from Central America to Central Africa. But it's not like Aaron leaves with their beans in his suitcases. The whole system of global trade that brings cars and steel and iPhones to the United States also is what is going to deliver coffee to Ritual. Those beans need to be packed into a container, loaded onto a ship, sailed across an ocean, and delivered to Oakland. And that's just what happens after the coffee leaves the country. Even just in Kenya, there are a lot of steps between coffee tree and export product.
1: Your Kenyan farmer, um, they're a subsistence farmer. So they're growing mostly food crops um, just, you know, to get by. And then they'll grow a cash crop, which is basically their entire income for the year. That's what they use, you know, to pay the phone bills. That's what they use to send their kids to school. Given that they have a plot of maybe an
0: acre or two, they work with a local coffee operation that gathers up coffee fruit from a bunch of farms. Those are the day lots I was talking about earlier. The facilities that house the crops
1: are called a factory. A factory is the place that buys coffee fruit and they turn it into um, the next step along the way to becoming green coffee, which is called uh, coffee parchment.
0: Parchment is basically an outer covering of the coffee bean that has to be removed, and that's done by a coffee dry mill, which takes it off by
1: varying processes, leaving raw green coffee. They sort it by density, they sort it by color, by size, to make all these different grades and qualities of coffees that you can buy, and then they send it to the auction. Uh, to be sold by the different grades. So just to
0: get to the point of export, here's the whole chain of transactions.
1: I'm buying coffee at the auction. Um, Technically I would be working via a broker to buy coffee from one of these coffee mills who buys their coffee from a factory, who buys the coffee from a farmer.
0: And that's where most stories about coffee skip you straight to the cafe sounds of making a latte. say you're one of those ritual customers Aaron was talking about earlier. You can't live without coffee from the Carmona Hacienda of Guatemala. By now it should be clear how much global trade rests on the personal taste of the coffee consumer. But there's a whole middle layer of invisible infrastructure that moves the beans from a place like Kenya to a roaster in Soma. Let's go see it. The guy was in a Did you see that? Our first stop is Royal Coffee, one of the biggest green coffee importers in the Western United States. We're here because, I mean, I have no idea what an importer actually does. Like, I know they bring things into the country, like I get it in the abstract, but the specifics of it? No idea. Royal is located way out in the San Francisco Bay on a little spit of land jutting out from Emeryville, right in between a Trader Vic's and a fancy dim sum place. Their two-story building was supposed to be a yacht club. Now, impeccably curated vintage coffee bags adorn the walls, and the trading floor is organized into a tasteful oval of desks. We sat down in a big office, and I handed the mic to Jennifer Huber, Royals Director of Operations, and told her just, you know, kind of hold the mic close to her like she was singing karaoke. Uh, said I'm
2: never gonna dance again (laughs) okay my name is Jennifer Huber and I am um, the director of operations and I am a trader at Royal Coffee Incorporated and we are a green coffee importer that's been around since 1978 an importer sources Um, the green coffee beans from various different countries throughout the world and we handle all of the logistics from getting it from the country of origin to the United States or wherever its final destination happens to be.
0: Really, it's all about having a Rolodex of connections in the dozens of countries that produce coffee.
2: For us, a lot of it is um, maintaining relationships and developing relationships. Um, A lot of the people that we've been working with, the producers, the exporters and such, we've been working with for decades. But we're also always looking for new producers and um, co-ops and such to be working with. So you've got the relationship aspect of it. You're also creating contracts, negotiating prices, um, staying up to date with um, where the market is for any given country of origin, as well as where the New York commodities market is.
0: The business is changing, though. It's getting harder. The standard trade in coffee used to be whole container loads of commodity coffee that was all handled and treated equally. But now an ever larger percentage of the industry is dealing with much more specific sourcing. And that's because it creates more interesting coffees that taste better. And also, I mean, let's be real, millennials love their small batch everything and will pay $10 for artisanal pickles. So they, by which I actually mean we, are definitely willing to pay for single origin coffees. The logistical corollary to that single origin is the microlot, a shipment of a small number of coffee bags. Micro lots are the enabling concept for the hyper-specific fancy coffee game of today. For a company like Ritual or Chicago's Intelligentsia or a bunch of others, it's all about having a bunch of different coffees coming from individual co-ops and farms. And those lots might be 10, 12, 15 sacks of coffee, way less than would fill a container, which might hold 250 sacks. So that requires more work for the exporters in Guatemala or Honduras or Sumatra, and way more for the importers, too. But that's the only way you get Carmona or a coffee produced just by the Barithi family on the Ulimu estate in Kenya. And a lot of that extra work falls to the traffic team, as they're called, at Royal.
3: Uh, my name is Melissa Holland. I work in inbound traffic, um, and basically what that is is the, um, the nitty-gritty nuts and bolts of coffee importing
0: and what that tends to mean is dealing with documents so many documents probably 10 for each and every shipment
3: and that's where our detail orientation comes in very handy because you need to make sure that all of the i's are dotted and the t's are crossed and that's where we encounter counter you know probably the biggest challenges just in terms of making sure that um You know, the correct number of bags have been accounted for, the weights are correct, the marks are correct, because each individual bag from each country has a unique mark that is supposed to go on the bag.
0: They track the containers as they come into the port and try to figure out how soon they can get the coffee out to customers.
3: Each container has a unique number that I can trace on um, each, uh, each shipping line's website, and I can find out roughly where it is. I don't get like a GPS tracking on it, but I can figure out pretty much at what point it is in the shipping process so that I can estimate a time of arrival. And that's really important to our
2: traders in order to be able to sell the coffee as soon as it arrives.
0: This is Jennifer again, the head of operations
2: is a number of reasons why you'd want to sell it right away one is um to turn over the cash you know we've paid for the coffee as soon as it's hit the water and we're financing it and so the sooner that we can get paid by the roasters the better um another reason is because yeah coffee you kind of want it to get purchased and roasted and consumed as soon as possible for for freshness sake
0: in case you missed that It's worth dwelling on. Small roasters like Ritual don't have the cash to front all the money they'd need to secure the beans they'd need for a season. So it's the importers that finance those acquisitions, giving coffee roasters the flexibility to buy from all over. Chances are you've never heard of Royal. But they could bring in and finance, during the busy season, one and a half million pounds of coffee in a single week, 40 containers worth. And even in the doldrums of January... They'll import 650,000 pounds of coffee.
2: We're we're large for independent coffee importers. A lot of the coffee importers these days are kind of owned by by larger um, conglomerates, you know? (laughs) Um, Like what
0: what would an example of that be? Like what kind of conglomerate owns a coffee importer? I
2: don't don't even know if conglomerate is the right word, Uh, but like Louis... Olam. Yeah, Olam, Louis-Dreyfus. Yeah, bring in
1: some coffees through... Um, an importer called Olam and they've got an arm called Olam Specialty that's geared just for um, handling uh, direct purchases where, you know, we set up the pricing and everything with the farmer and we use them more for their services of importation and storage. Uh, When I'm talking with Olam, they're just a tiny arm of a larger importation business and uh, they're based out of Singapore. They deal with grain, cocoa, um, all sorts of things, um, you know. Millions and millions and millions of pounds of commodities.
0: Got it. See, I've never right. heard of any of those companies in my life. Right. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> they're Louis, also
2: like, hidden. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Louis
0: Dreyfus, Olam, like what? Yeah. What, are, what is? What? Yeah. I'm sure if you go look them up, you're like, oh, they like have 50 billion dollars of revenue a year. Actually, Olam Group has revenue of 13 billion dollars a year, but Louis Dreyfus had 56 billion dollars of revenue in the last year I could find. Well, yeah.
2: Louis Dreyfus is yeah. huge. Yeah, they're really big.
0: Did you guys know this stuff before you got into the industry? Or I'd did heard, you?
2: Of Louis Dreyfus, yeah. heard of Louis-Dreyfus, yeah. That's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Yeah. Who's actually related
3: to
2: yeah. that. Really? Mm-hmm. You can interview her next. <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> Containers is brought to you by Flexport. Flexport is a freight forwarding company built around modern technology. They help over 2,500 companies run better global supply chains. Check them out at Flexport.com. We've been tracing the hidden back end to the explosion of precisely sourced high-end coffee from the farm through the system of global trade. Now we're going to go a little deeper into the system as it works here in San Francisco, which has been a leader in this new third wave of coffee in America. Coffee importing in the San Francisco Bay has always been a big business. For much of the 20th century, coffee was the highest value import into the city. All the longshoremen knew what it was to work a coffee ship. At times, coffee was the biggest business in the whole bay. California Street actually was something of a coffee row. The smell of roasting coffee blanketed the downtown, and two of the biggest national coffee brands of the century were built in the city Folgers and Hills Brothers.
1: Coffee, coffee, richer,
4: stronger, I'll last longer. Follow me, men. Head for the hill. It's good, strong coffee. It's Hills Brothers.
0: Coffee coffee. I want to dwell for a minute on San Francisco's relationship with coffee. One reason is that coffee helped to create San Francisco. But San Francisco and its role in the importing and distribution of coffee also helped to create the modern coffee industry. The consumer experience of coffee has always been shaped by the hidden back end of not just farms, but ships and technologies and business innovation. Why did San Francisco become such a big coffee town? Because it was the best port on the West Coast, basically. Well, that in World War I. Before World War I, the Germans and British both financed and received shipment of Central American, particularly Guatemalan, coffee. It was very good stuff, it still is better than the Brazilian varieties that most Americans then drank. But when the war disrupted European trade, San Francisco bankers and importers stepped in to finance the Guatemalan producers. Coffee flooded into San Francisco. In 1906, when the great earthquake hit the city, about 250,000 bags were coming into the city. In 1914, 1915, that had gone up to 400,000. And by 1918, boom, importers brought in a million bags of coffee. That would work out to roughly 150 million pounds of coffee streaming into a city with a population of not even 500,000. San Francisco coffee businesses also developed two key processes. One was the use of vacuum packing, which was pioneered by Hills Brothers. Vacuum packing sealed moisture out of ground coffee-filled cans, allowing for greater shelf life. In effect, it allowed the massive expansion of national brands selling coffee in tins, which is the model, albeit kind of a shitty model on a coffee-flavor basis, that dominated 20th century coffee. The other San Francisco invention was what's called cupping, which is to say that coffee is actually tasted multiple times throughout its production and distribution to see if it's good. It seems crazy that this had to be developed, but prior to the early 20th century in San Francisco, the world's coffee buyers thought that they could eyeball the coffee and grade it that way. So they were willing to pay more for bigger beans, for example, even if size had nothing to do with the taste of the coffee. Cupping is now an absolutely essential feature of the coffee business. So San Francisco shows that the relationship between the product of coffee as people consume it, and the importing and distribution processes are deeply, deeply related. They drive each other. You want hyper-specific single-origin coffees, you need a whole supply chain that understands how to deal with that. There's this concept in the software world called the stack, and it basically holds that any particular technology is built on top of other technologies. So the app on your phone is actually built on a series of underlying stuff that lets developers focus just on the app stuff, And that's what's happening with coffee roasting right now. There's now a beautiful stack that allows even the smallest or newest roasters to ply their craft. One of those layers is a legendary place called the Annex, which has helped make the Bay Area Specialty Coffee Explosion possible. It's a place that can store all your little shipments from all over the world and send them to you as you need them for roasting. Aaron guides me out there. He's been a regular visitor here for years.
1: So you can see the building that says Annex. So we enter on the far side. Oh, we enter on the far side. Yeah.
0: Okay. The Annex is an anonymous warehouse in San Leandro. It's surrounded by a granite trading company, a scrapyard, a place that sells big steel bolts, you know, in case you need any of those, and a little Mexican restaurant called La Piñata. Anna and I walk past waiting truckers and inside the main building. We're meeting with Dave Weber who's a strong dude in his middle age. He's still got all his hair and looks a bit like Jay Leno, but with a normal chin. He's deeply knowledgeable about the coffee business. Even the artwork in his office is a nod to coffee logistics. Hanging behind his desk is a painting of Red Java House, an old dock worker hangout at Pier 40 in San Francisco.
4: Or, just us. Just just the two. Okay. We're one of the largest green coffee warehouses on the West Coast. Uh, the annex in total is right around 500,000 square feet. I would say there's safely uh, a bean from every coffee producing country in this warehouse right now.
0: The annex is called a consolidating warehouse. They can pull all your various orders from Burundi and Colombia and Guatemala and stick them on pallets, which get loaded into trucks and delivered to roasters. They get involved as soon as the containers get cleared by customs,
4: thanks to people like Melissa at Royal. We have an in-house carrier that's worked with us since the beginning. He and his drivers know their way around the port of Oakland pretty well. They'll pick up these containers, bring them back to our warehouse. We'll do uh, the unloading, physically unload each bag uh, out of the containers, palletize them. That literally means putting the bags on pallets.
0: Then they check out the coffee, make it available for importers or roasters to sample, and get it ready for shipping out. The work that's done here is physical labor, executed in teams who spend all day on the warehouse floor pulling bags and loading them up for delivery.
4: There are four four forklift operators that are constantly pulling orders. So two of this, five bags of that, seven of this, uh, all day. And then those bags are brought up to the front
0: As with Royal, coffee used to come in and go out in full container loads.
4: Now it's all these micro-lots, which require a lot more work. We've seen this business go from the larger roasters, higher volumes, full truckload in, full truckload out. And that's still there, but we also see the smaller roasters that are taking 10 bags a week or, you know, 40 bags a week. We headed out onto the warehouse floor where we met up with Hugo, another old coffee
0: hand and manager at the annex. He's a short, solid guy, warm and helpful. He's originally from Antigua, Guatemala, which just so happens to be where the Carmona Hacienda
5: is. Well, Guatemala, it's known for their, one of the best coffees in the world, Antigua. So I remember walking to school, seven, eight years old, you know, most kids like, um... Candy, you know, and I would go past the roaster uh, and they had little samples uh, uh, by the window. I used to go and chew on on the beans and and then later on, I'm going, Jesus, that was a sign that I was going to (laughs) give in the the coffee business. It just uh, cracks me up, you know.
0: The floor of the warehouse is thrumming with activity. Some of the guys drive forklifts, some of the guys strap the coffee onto the pallets, some throw coffee bags.
4: Did you ever throw these bags or something? When I first started, I did. Mm -hmm. And these guys are doing about a thousand a day as a team, it's
5: technique.
0: Hugo and I wander off to watch the team's work. He explains the route he took into the business.
5: Uh, I started with Hills Brothers back in 1984. I was in the accounting department. There was an opening in the commodities department. I I applied it and uh, for it. And since well, I'm uh, bilingual, I'm uh, Spanish and most, a lot of the coffee growers are from, you know, Central America. I was able to communicate with them. Uh, so I've been doing that for uh, well uh, 12 years with the Hills and um, 15 years with Nestle and 20 20 years here uh, so uh Familiar with uh, roasting, production, and now warehousing. Wow! wow. So uh, you name it. Uh, Would you ever start your own coffee business? I'm not. I don't think I'm very good at uh, taking chances. Uh, there's marketing, sales, and I think I'm uh, I'm weak at that. Uh, I'd rather just. Uh, I love this uh, working in this warehouse, uh, working with people, customer services really not just about the coffee but relationships with people and it just, you know, going back 35 years, uh, things have changed and now I feel like, um, you know, I'm here to teach a little bit and at the same time I'm uh, I'm learning because things are changing and, um, you know, Dave and I are down to the last six, seven years or so, we like to support each other and just uh, you know, retire here, if all goes. What, what do you think is the most significant change that you've seen? Micro-lot coffee. Um, you know, it was even uh, five years ago, uh, just a simple one container, one lot. It was a 45-minute um, job. Now we are getting containers with several micro-lots. that take up to three, three-and-a-half hours to, to sort out our gourmet area, the market lot, um, even, again, five years ago, our day was just uh, 50 pallets. Now we're 150, sometimes to 200 pallets a day. The business so, is more time-consuming,
0: more complex, and that has driven the growth of the warehouse. As third-wave coffee grows through more small roasters getting into the game, so does the annex.
5: We, we know this is the way it's going to be, and I tell my guys wait till summertime i think we're probably going to go and increase production another 40 percent because there are more rosters uh medium size smaller they're coming uh, and it's good for us now tell them hey, you don't have to be looking for another job you got it here if you want it but you need to get to the next level and you'll be rewarded for what you do I know sometimes they don't take lunch or they gotta stay late. Sometimes uh, my guys come in at four in the morning.
0: Two guys are preparing to load up an outgoing truck. Hugo looks on with obvious pleasure.
5: 302 bags, they'll load that truck in an hour at most. That's uh, 42,000 pounds. And do maybe five or six of those a day. And the other kid is only about 110 pounds. <laughs> but they're fast. strong, I guess.
0: They are fast. We watch them work in perfect coordination. This is part of the foundation of the coffee industry. These sacks, these warehouses, these guys throwing bags, using their bodies, their shoulders, their backs, their hands to move this product. All right, well, we should probably get out of your hair. Sorry, thank you. I know you guys have a busy day. No coffee.
4: Yeah. If you got
0: any. Dave and Hugo go back to work, and Aaron and I drive off, probably with some kind of contact, caffeine high from being among all the stacks of coffee beans. The way the whole system works to create third wave coffee is dawning on me. It just seems like, in all these different ways, the. In all these different ways, a a lot of the scale and complexity that used to be required in order to do each step of the game has sort of been, it's gone away, you know. Talking to the guys at the Annex, it's so apparent that they realize that micro-lots are the future of the game. While the big guys still dominate the business in terms of sheer tonnage, the prestige and growth are in the smaller lots and being able to handle them. When people talk about... Developing a business ecosystem. I realized this is what that actually means. All these different little pieces from the farm level to the financial level, at the shipping level, warehouse level. The flexibility needs to be built in at every layer of the stack. And what it leads to is all these new coffees. These new taste experiences. Because the ecosystem allows people to farm and roast in unprecedented ways.
2: Coffee's for Jim.
0: it for us. Containers is produced and edited by Jonathan Hirsch. Mandana Mofiti is the director of audio at Fusion Media Group. Special, special thanks to Eileen Rinaldi, founder of Ritual, hooked us up with Aaron, and to Ann Wintraub for throwing the holiday party where Eileen first told me the story of this crazy warehouse in San Leandro that's the linchpin of the local coffee industry. Also, thanks to Sheila Muchmore at the Annex for helping us and also having the best name. Thanks to James Freeman at Blue Bottle 2 who got me into writing about the business. And finally, thanks to Marina and Kristen and Fauna at Modern Coffee, which has fueled this whole podcast. You also heard a little ambient sound from their 19th Street store. Right now, myself, I'm drinking a Costa Rican coffee called arracache from Modern Coffee. Tune in next week. When we look at the America First trade policy that keeps American ships plying the waters, and we meet a fascinating ship captain named Tony Motion, that's his actual name, who happens to be friends with Gary Snyder, the Pulitzer Prize winning poet.
1: Oh, God, so Gary's a really
4: good, uh, he's one of my best friends, really good friends, you know, so, so, you know, there's like, we have this little cabal of about 12 to 14 of us that have been having dinners together for the last 35 years.